Welcome to this week's edition of What in the World. My name is Andre Gonoella. I'm being joined as always by my co-host Brian Rosenthal. This is a very special production of the Burn Bag Podcast. And uh, yeah, let's talk to you all about what exactly is happening in the world this week. Ryan, you up first. What's happening? What's in mind? There's a lot on my mind, Andre, um, but particularly when we look at the world, uh, let's start with Armenia. You know, we've talked about Armenia in the past, particularly the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, just today, and you know, yesterday as well, there are calls by generals within the Armenian military for the Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, to resign. Uh, this is largely because of the kind of the political crisis that kind of came to be as a result of Armenia basically losing the conflict with Azerbaijan. Um, as we, we talked about in previous episodes, uh, most notably with uh, former Ambassador Ian Kelly, where we kind of went really deep into the conflict. And so for all of you, we're not, we're not going to you know, go back over what actually went down. But if, you, if you're interested, I suggest you check out that episode. So, so basically, uh, they've been hit hard by coronavirus. Their economy is really you know, hit hard as well. There's a devastating loss of life and territory over this conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, the, the military is upset. And so there are calls within uh, by military generals, the leadership, for the prime minister to resign. The prime minister is saying he won't resign. He has fired the chief of staff uh, of the military, uh, Onik Gasparian. Uh, and so this is, and at least to the prime minister's mind, he's calling it a coup. Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty as to what's occurring right now. Uh, Russia notably has a defense pact with Armenia, it has an air base in the country. And so I know that Russia, uh, Russian leaders have had conversations with Armenian leaders. Um, but there's a lot of uncertainty right now as to what's going to occur. Um, but there is uh, this deep political instability in a country that has already been hit very hard by instability. And so uh, I, I keep an eye uh, looking towards Armenia as days unfold. And Ryan, uh, for our listeners, because I think we had that episode with Ian Kelly quite a while back, I think maybe in October and November, when the crisis was really reaching its height. Uh, did anyone necessarily win the war? Was it more of a ceasefire? What actually happened at the end? Well, it depends on which side you ask, right? Um, but I'd say on balance, uh, Azerbaijan, I mean, won the war. I mean, there's, there's really no disputing that. They uh, took a significant portion of land. Uh, they, of course, were backed by Turkey, which had a, a very heavy influence in the conflict. Russia stayed on the sidelines and is now managing uh, a, a quote-unquote ceasefire or a cessation of hostilities um, in, this un, in this disputed region. And so uh, Azerbaijan did take the victory. And if, if anyone's paying attention or wants to kind of learn more about it, you'll see that the, Azer, the leader of Azerbaijan was, you know, quite forceful in his rhetoric following the, the quote-unquote victory. Uh, and he did not, you know, parse words, uh, was very kind of anti-Armenian. There's a lot of ethnic Armenians in the region. And so they've either been fleeing or have been kind of undergoing discrimination since then. And so uh, this is only heightening tensions between the two countries. And as, I've been, and, and as I said, it's going to uh, kind of lead Armenia into even more political uncertainty and chaos because of this quote-unquote coup. Mm, certainly, certainly. Uh, now I want to sort of move in actually into some discussions on social media, because I think some of the social media giants have not been having a good time in some countries, specifically Australia, Myanmar, and India. Uh, 
Ryan, you want to tell us a bit about what's happening in Australia first before I dig into India? Right. So last week, we talked about the proposed law that would force these technology companies to pay publishers of news content. And so Facebook responded by basically banning news in Australia. And as we talked about last week, uh, most Australians uh, use Facebook for news, right? I mean, a, a huge portion of the Australian population looks to Facebook for their news. And so uh, while it seemed like Australia and Facebook came to some sort of agreement, uh, Australia actually passed this law. And so I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but uh, I, I can't imagine Facebook's going to be very happy um, just because you know, now these technology companies have to pay publishers for content. And that's something that is almost unprecedented when we look at big tech. Uh, and so who knows? Uh, I, I don't really anticipate us, um, Australia kind of losing its access to Facebook again, particularly over news. Um, but Facebook has a lot of power here, right? I mean, there are millions and millions of Australians using Facebook. And if you shut them out, they're going to go to the government and say, you know, what's going on? We want to use Facebook. We get our news from Facebook. Your new law is preventing us from doing that. And so, um, again, this is a, another reckoning between governments and technology companies. And so let's, let's move on to, to, to India, just because I think uh, we should have a broader conversation about the, this movement around the world um, of the, the clash between big tech and government. Yeah, certainly. So in India, as we know, we've been talking about this for the past few weeks. There have been significant farmers' protests that have erupted into sometimes violent clashes between the farmers and the police. Uh, a lot of the organizations of some of these protests have been taking place on uh, social media, on Twitter, for example. Uh, think of the Arab Spring, right, in Tahir Square. We saw a lot of those protests being organized via Twitter and Facebook to the extent that they were called Twitter revolutions. In India, of course, no one is necessarily calling for the government to be overthrown. They're calling more so for, quote-unquote, fair treatment of farmers in their view. Uh, but India has really tried to force Twitter to take down some accounts, basically, that have been promoting, I think, some of the uh, opinions and the perspectives of, of the farmers. Uh, Twitter did end up taking down some of those accounts but, uh, you know, India wanted them to go a step further and really block journalists and some politicians, which Twitter really was not all about. Uh, so now India is actually putting in some new laws uh, that will affect Facebook, Twitter and some other uh, companies, uh, which will, according to CNN, any social media company in India is going to have to create three roles. One's going to be a compliance officer another a grievance officer, and another a contact person who will be able to sort of keep in touch with Indian uh, law enforcement, Indian police, and so on. And there will be some content regulation, mostly around uh, content that one would deem, say, inappropriate of a sexual nature. But, I mean, this could be a slippery slope with regards to other sorts of content uh, censorship and so on. And I mean, you should really sort of view this as a direct result of the Indian government's contentious relationship with social media in the aftermath of these protests. And I say aftermath, but that's the wrong word because the protests are still going on. So, yeah, and I think the, the, another interesting case is that of Myanmar, which you mentioned. And so uh, Facebook has banned military pages um, in Myanmar. And so basically, I think the crazy statistic, at least for me, is that. Uh, as of January, there are 22.3 
million Burmese people on Facebook. That is over 40% of the population. Uh, Facebook is basically the internet in Myanmar. That is, I mean, a crazy statistic. And so Facebook has has said that they're not doing as there's been basically international calls uh, for Facebook to take action because uh, they have not kind of clamped down on hate speech in the country. Uh, we've talked about the issue of the Rohingya um, population in uh, Myanmar, which has for years been under a, you know state sanctioned discrimination. And so uh, Facebook is now after this coup that we've been talking about, uh, they have kind of t- taken action as a company said they're going to reduce the distribution of content uh, by the, the military in Myanmar, because now the, the military is the government uh, after this coup. And so this is um, another instance of a social media platform taking action. Um, but again, it kind of calls into the in, into question the broader um, conversation about when is it appropriate for these social media platforms to uh, regulate speech, to regulate that speech of citizens, of governments. And so it's, it's a fascinating instance. Um, it's certainly one that may very well be justified just because, uh, that I mean, the military took power uh, in an undemocratic way. They are, you know, clamping down on the democratic protesters in Myanmar. Uh, but still, right, I mean, Facebook ostensibly has the power to do so around the world. And so that, again, raises questions as to do these platforms have too much power and what should governments uh, do in order to kind of regulate or maybe lessen the amount of influence that these platforms have in their country. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, look, I mean, this raises such a big question about the idea of freedom of speech, something I've sort of mentioned before about like whether Facebook, Twitter, and these other social media companies are American companies or whether they are global companies. And, you know, if they're, if they're American companies, do they stymie American values abroad? How does that work necessarily? And, you know, we've seen in the aftermath of the Capitol Hill riots on January 6th, uh, obviously, the banning of President Donald Trump from Twitter, the banning of uh, some other sorts of far right uh, figures and other users on Twitter who may provoke violence. And then, you know, on the other side of the coin, you have some of these democratic protests that are occurring what do social media companies do? Like, what do they what do they do? Because one side's going to point out, you know, a double standard. The other side's going to be like, no, there is no double standard. We are fundamentally different. And the governments are going to get involved, and they're going to be like, well, depending on the perspective of that government, whether they want their strongman, uh, burgeoning authoritarian style government or not, what do they do? Right. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a, a week after week conversation that you and I are having, and so uh, again, you know, I don't, I don't have the solution. You don't have the solution, but I, we were, we're raising this just because it seems like, you know, it's it's coming to a head, right? The, the international community um, is trying to manage its relationship with private business, particularly technology companies. We're having a conversation here in the United States, it's happening in Europe, it's happening in Asia, it's happening in Africa. Uh, it's it's a global issue, and so in each country, depending upon right there own domestic political situation is handling it very differently. And so, again, this is an area in which we're likely to see a lot of movement. There's going to be action both by these companies and by these governments. And so, um, again, I think I I encourage you guys listening to kind of read more about this and, and kind of be attuned to all the development. Yeah, sure. Definitely.
Yeah, so let's let's return to the caucuses for a minute, just because there is um, a lot of political instability in Georgia now, and so the the Georgian government has arrested the main opposition party leader Nika Melia. He is a leader of the United National Movement, and so his arrest is you know basically seen as a political move um, by the by the, the the government, and so Prime Minister uh, Georgi Gakaria resigned last week admitted a debate internally within his own party about enforcing the arrest warrant against Melia. And so now there are thousands of protesters in the streets of the capital demanding the release, which then now there's a rift within the ruling party. And so Georgia, which, you know, is was kind of on its way to becoming a a, a post-Soviet democracy, is basically kind of backsliding. We're seeing backsliding uh, in Georgia, which is deeply unfortunate. Uh, just because there were, you know, calls for it, maybe one day joining NATO, um, maybe having closer ties with the European Union, and so this is uh, a dark day for Georgia and for the region. And so, I mean, sanctions may very well be on the way. Mm, certainly, certainly. It's what is what has Georgia been like over the last few years? Because I feel like the last time I really heard about Georgia in the news was in two thousand and eight, when I think Russia. Was it they invaded South Ossetia? Yeah. So, if for all of, for all of you listening, right, Georgia is a, a post-Soviet country. Uh, it was part of the Soviet Union. It had for many years heavy Russian influence, and still to this day, uh, part of of Georgia is being occupied by Russia, for more or less, in South Ossetia. And so, um, I mean, o- over the years, uh, Georgia has westernized, has had closer relations with the United States. Um, but I mean, the, the U.S. Embassy in Georgia said that it is, quote unquote, dismayed by the polarizing rhetoric from Georgia's leadership at a time of crisis. And it added that, quote unquote, today, Georgia has moved backward on its push toward becoming a stronger democracy in the Euro-Atlantic family of nations, close quote. And I think that's very telling. Right. And so a country that was on its way to becoming a part of the Western democracies is backsliding. And so um, this is angering the Georgian people. Uh, and so it'll, it'll be very interesting to see what happens to the, the to the leading party um, and the president of Georgia, uh, just because it seems like the population won't let this stand. Right? I mean, Georgia's political um, the, their internal party politics, you know, is quite toxic. Um, but still, I mean, it, it was it had democratic elections, and so you're you're basically um, negating, or I guess you know working against the will of the people by arresting a political opponent just for the sake of politics. And so um, I, I don't imagine that the, the situation in Georgia will improve um, in, the, in the coming days. It, it does not seem like the, the, the ruling party is going to back down right now, even though they're dealing with their own internal kind of split. Um, but uh, as I said, this only kind of helps Russia, right? When you have democratic institutions break down in post-Soviet countries, particularly those where Russia has such an influential or hopes to have great influence, uh, it's really just playing into the Kremlin's hand. Yeah. Now, now speaking of other backsliding democracies, I want to bring people's attention to Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka was immersed, of course, in a 25-year, 30-year, actually, civil war between 1983 and 2009, between the Sinhala-dominant government and the terror group, the Tamil Tigers, who wanted to uh, basically take the northern part of Sri Lanka and create their own Tamil-dominant state. 
uh, the Tamil Tigers were defeated in 2009. But then this guy, Mahinda Rajapaksa, was the president of Sri Lanka during the war. After the war ended, he became more authoritarian in style. His brother was the defense secretary, was seen very much as this vicious, sort of lethal, deadly type of leader. But uh, they had elections in 2015, and they lost to this democratic coalition led by this guy named President Sirisena and his prime minister, Runnell. We'll call him Runnell for now. But that government turned out to be very incompetent. And in 2019, there were a series of Easter Sunday bombings against churches and hotels, which were largely targeted against, I think, the Christian populations, uh, which were attributed to ISIS. I think they were uh, ISIS-inspired Islamic extremist terrorists in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, in the capital. So I bring this up now because basically the government has sanctioned an investigation on the matter that was in 2019. And right now, the current president is actually that former defense secretary, Gota Beya Rajapaksa, who is also very much seen as a strongman-type leader. Uh, the previous president, uh, Sirisena, he actually allied with the Rajapaksas after winning the election. So it's, it's a complicated situation, guys. It's a complicated situation. It's sort of screwed up, but it just is. But anyway... The Commission of Inquiry basically said that they want to bring criminal proceedings against the former president, Sirisena, for liability with regards to these Easter Sunday attacks that were attributed to ISIS-inspired militants. Basically, what happened was the Sri Lankan government, they had received warnings that these attacks were going to take place, and they did not really take any action whatsoever. There were red alerts sort of being sent We have varying notifications, but the Sri Lankan government took no action and 300 people died in these suicide bombings. So we'll sort of see what's going to happen with that. Uh, I mean, the government was just incompetent and now the the former president might actually be prosecuted for it. Who knows? I mean, it's very interesting. I I also kind of want to kind of dig a little deeper into Sri Lanka just because, at least to me, right, I, I know just from talking to you, Andre, that. Uh, Sri Lanka is not a, a democratic country. It is a quite a corrupt country as well. And so is there any sort of politicking going on in this prosecution of the former president? Is this really an attempt to take off maybe domestic pressure at home on the, the sort of corruption issues that are ongoing between, you know, the Rajapaksa ruling plan, I guess, to call it more or less. And so I'm really kind of curious what your thoughts are as someone who knows the country and its politics so well. Yeah, well, I mean, Sri Lanka is technically democratic. Sri Lanka is technically democratic in terms of, you know, the whole elections. The elections are relatively like, uh, you can trust the elections, at least the most recent elections when they didn't jail an opposition candidate, <laughs> which they did actually in 20, I think in 2010, the Rajapaksas actually accused their opposition candidate of uh, trying to assassinate them. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of internal politicking, the former president is relatively powerless. I mean, the guy has no political, like, he has no political capital. Uh, you'd never find a more universally disliked guy than the former president. Because as I said before, in 2018, so he was partnering with some of the more democratic-leaning uh, political parties, the UNP, uh, with the prime minister, Ranil. This former president, though, was a minister in the Rajapaksa government and basically defected. 
and became president. But then in 2018, he kicks out the prime minister, Ranil, and instates former president Mahinda Rajapaksa as his prime minister, basically defecting back to that side. And then there's this whole like thing, there's this like, you know, talk of like a political coup. And then eventually, like the prime minister, Ranil, he's like, oh, you think you're going to be prime minister? Well, you'll have to kick me out of my home first, a prime minister's residence. Think it's if like Donald Trump didn't leave the White House, sort of like that. So then after some negotiations, they ended up swearing Ranil back in as prime minister. But the Gotabe Rajapaksa won a landslide victory after the terror attacks on Easter Sunday. In terms of internal politicking, definitely there is probably going to be a lot of internal politicking. The Rajapaksas are very shrewd. Uh, Minda is definitely more of the Minda who is, by the way, now the prime minister under his brother's presidency. He's very much more the political, sh- politically shrewd-minded. Gotabe is definitely an aspiring dictator. So, I mean, yeah, they'll try to like dilute any opposition. Opposition still exists, but the opposition. I mean, it's it's do they even need to dilute the opposition when the opposition is so fractured and so screwed up itself? So, I mean, in terms of politicking, it's it's a it's a weird situation, and the opposition is filled with a lot of incompetence. I'd say so. Like, so like there isn't much work for them to do. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 quite interesting, and and we'll I'll be interested to see kind of how this unfolds and whether or not the the former president is actually prosecuted and if charges are brought and if he's held liable. Um, but I mean, Andre, we have, uh, you know, a string of countries today that we, we typically don't talk about. And so these are smaller countries with much less influence on the world stage than some of the ones we usually talk about. But I will uh, have to bring up one in particular that we have talked about and is a quite an important um, country from U.S. foreign policy perspectives, that being Saudi Arabia, uh, particularly uh, with the, the, the Khashoggi murder. And so uh, for those of you who may not be very familiar, Jamal Khashoggi was a, a journalist uh, with the Washington Post. Uh, he was um, allegedly, according to U.S. reporting, the U.N. report, killed inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, and so him and his murderers were allegedly uh, Saudi agents. And so a report is um, about to be released by the United States government, by the intelligence community, that seems to be quite damning for Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and so basically, it's, it's, it's kind of tracking how this all went down, basically tying the murder, the 2018 murder of Khashoggi to the Crown Prince and kind of showing how it was directed by him. And so uh, this likely has implications for U.S.-Saudi relations. Uh, President Joe Biden will not kind of allow uh, the murder to go unanswered. It's going to have a deep impact, whereas we saw under the Trump administration, right, it was kind of swept under the rug, wasn't really talked about. Um, and so this is, it's going to be quite a difficult relationship for the Saudis to manage just because uh, the United States is taking a, a very different approach to the relationship, particularly when we're looking at human rights. And keep in mind that also Joe Biden, I think Jen Psaki, uh, the press secretary for President Biden, said that, yeah, President Biden's going to speak to King Salman only because King Salman is his natural counterpart as a head of state. So, I mean, whereas before, I think the U.S. government really dealt with MBS as the de facto leader, you can sort of start, you sort of start seeing this implicit departure from, I guess, like, you know, 
the strong friendship with MBS. Also, I mean, keep in mind that the Biden administration wants to reopen up negotiations for the JCPOA with Iran, uh, as we mentioned last week. So, like, yeah, keep your eyes on that to see how the U.S.-Saudi relationship develops, just because, I mean, we're seeing all these controversies. One, the Khashoggi murder. Two, Saudi Arabia's involvement in the war on Yemen, where many countless people have died, and so on, basically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, Again, as we've talked about, Saudi Arabia is instrumental in the U.S. kind of pushback against Iran. But I guess when if when the United States is taking a more um, friendly, quote unquote, friendly approach to Iran, particularly because of its attempts to negotiate some kind of nuclear deal, uh, the the hard the hard approach to Iran, that not being, I guess, the main policy position, you don't have to be as friendly with Saudi Arabia, and so. Um, this at least allows the, the United States to have a, a more harsh approach, and they'll likely be able to do it quite easily just because, as we've talked about, while the United States has some sort, sort of you know, dependence on Saudi, the Saudis need the United States more than we need them. And so uh, this will have ripples throughout the region. Um, but um, as we've talked about, um, you know, there's a lot that's going to change under the Biden administration, particularly with uh, leaders of more authoritarian countries just because Joe Biden has demonstrated his commitment to advancing democracy, rule of law, and human rights. Certainly. And be, and before we close, we mentioned that, you know, like we talked a lot about these smaller countries today, but I mean, keep in mind, a lot of these smaller countries are going to be vital to a lot of the interests of the quote-unquote great powers. I mean, Sri Lanka, for example, it finds itself in this little quadrant this bidding war between India and China, because, you know, whoever controls Sri Lanka geopolitically, of course, Sri Lanka is a sovereign nation, but I mean, look at what China's doing with BRI, for example. You know, whoever controls, like, you know, ports in Sri Lanka may control the trade routes or even military naval routes in the Indian Ocean. Uh, think about Georgia. I mean, Russia was just in Georgia in 2008. Uh, think about Azerbaijan and Armenia in between Turkey, Russia. Turkey being a member of NATO. Uh, I mean, you, you think about all of these like small countries, but think about them in the large, in the bigger picture. Think about how those domestic political situations can impact Chinese interests, can impact Indian interests, can impact Russian interests and U.S. interests, because they certainly do, and they are playing into how international relations go and foreign policy ensues. I completely agree. And so, again, before we close, I want to mention our collaboration with the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center. And so the Burnbag podcast has teamed up with the Scowcroft Center to produce uh, the 100 ideas for the first 100 days of the Biden administration. And so basically what we're doing is we are having uh, experts uh, in the field of U.S. foreign policy and national security come onto the podcast to discuss the ideas that they contributed to the 100 ideas for the first 100 days project. And so we are, are very fortunate to have had General David Petraeus and Ambassador Daniel Freed for episode one. Uh, it launched on Thursday. We also talked to the director uh, of the Scowcroft Center about this project, what inspired them, and also the work, the very important work that they do. And so I highly encourage you all to go check it out, as well as check out the actual ideas that are being contributed to the project. Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's quite different than what we've usually done. Uh, and so, yeah, please check it out. And definitely check out our newsletter. We have regional readouts uh, that we write, basically, and also some like occasional big stories as well. 
please check that out. If you're interested in uh, writing for us as well, uh, reach out to us as well. So thank you so much for listening in this week. We'll be back on Monday with a great episode with Admiral uh, Stavridis, actually. And check out the Atlantic Council uh, collaboration and see you next week. 